Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share, and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode of this crazy thing we call our podcast. This is episode 133, and today we'll be chatting with Morgan Debon, the co-founder and CEO of Blavity. Morgan initially wanted to be a teacher before learning more about startups. She then started to explore some of her own ideas for startups before diving into a career as a product manager. After a few years at Intuit, Morgan later joined a small startup in San Francisco called Demand Force. She then started to think about launching a company of her own. Today, with a team of 17, Blavity reaches more than 20 million readers per month, runs two major conferences a year, and has raised over $1 million in funding. Morgan joins us to share her story, how she started her career in tech, what motivated her to launch Blavity, how she had to approach fundraising, why they started a pair of conferences, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hack to start drop us an email at hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Morgan. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're super excited to have you on and to get to learn more about, you know, you and and what you're doing with Blavity. But before we dive into that, can you tell us and the listeners a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, so I'm a a St. Louis native, grew up in St. Louis, went to college in St. Louis. So I went to Washington University. Um, Never thought that I would ever, ever leave St. Louis, like ride or die. If you had asked me, you know, sophomore, junior year, what I was what I was going to do, it'd be like be in St. Louis, of course. So I actually studied political science as my major and had a double minor in entrepreneurship and education. I wanted to be a teacher. So I went through actually the kind of like teacher certification process and then quickly realized as I got into schools, particularly in the city of St. Louis, that a lot of the best teachers and principals were restricted by federal regulations and local regulations. So I was like, all right, I'll be a politician. No problem. I got this. And then as I like learn more about politics, more about um, political environment, I realized that a lot of, of public interest is controlled by money, right? It's controlled by business um, and it's controlled by access. And technology ultimately, in my mind, is the best place for people to have equal access to opportunities, right? Like you can be sitting in East St. Louis or the South Side of Chicago and listen to a to this podcast, or you could listen to you know a lecture from someone at Stanford. And so if we can figure out how to kind of level the playing field in that way, then we can help make more change. So that's like how I, I got to the, the startup world and, and eventually moved out of St. Louis. But um, yeah, so I studied poli sci. That's awesome. It's really cool. So where did that passion for, you know, specifically, I guess, technology at, at some point, but also entrepreneurship, where did that come about? Was it was it through the studies uh, of that double major? Or was it something that was kind of there all along? You know, I've always been a hustler. Like I've always been one of those people that was trying to make money <laughs> from other people. So you know, I, I think it's just been embedded into me. My my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My family is like super crafty and curious about life. So I knew at some point I wanted to have my own business or work for myself. You know, I, I think it, the technology piece came in actually through someone who's now my co-founder, our CTO, Jeff. He was two years ahead of me in college 
Um, and he was a CS major and I was like, what is this CS situation? Like, <laughs> what, what is it? You know, I didn't come from a school where that was an option. And, uh, I learned through him, you know, the power of creation and, you know, rapid prototyping and all these things. So we had a startup with a few other people, um, many of which are now super successful entrepreneurs themselves that failed miserably, but it was a great process. So we did that actually my sophomore year of college. It was called Quad Connect. It's like funny talking about it now. Um, but Quad Connect was a, a website that you could go um, and find free food on campus. Because at the time when I was in college, um, like Facebook events like weren't really a thing. And if you weren't connected to kind of like the campus calendar, which most people weren't, then you didn't know what events were happening where you had to be like really good friends with someone to really know, hey, if, you, if we go to, you know, down the hall and to the left, there's free pizza. And at the end of the semester, when everyone's almost out of meal points, it really becomes this like frantic, hey, can I borrow your meal points? Who's got extra? Like, I'll get you back next semester. Um, and uh, Jeff and I were both in student government. So I was, he was student body president and then I was student body president. So we knew where all the free food was because we funded all of it. So um, we kind of created this platform where we, we wanted to and worked on it to aggregate all of those things on campus so people could quickly search and, and find some free stuff. Ultimately, it never launched because like we, we just were not a good operating team. But I think it's still a great concept. Someone might have solved it by now. Yeah, absolutely. Too bad it never came together. I'm sure people would have loved uh, free pizza. Yeah, for so, sure. So kind of after that experience, I guess, and, and you know, after you finished school, how did you start off your career in, you know, in, in, in what field? I guess, what did you do after school? Yeah, so, um, you know, St. Louis isn't necessarily a hotbed for, for tech. It might be now. It's like definitely growing. But back in the day, there was like maybe two, three startups there. Um, and so I actually was working at one of them. It was an ed tech company my senior year. And the the founder of the company, Joe, was like, you should go to Singapore. Like, that's the fastest growing economy, tech economy. Like, you'll do really well there, Hong Kong. And I was like, you know, Joe, like, I'm just getting over leaving Missouri. I don't think I can go all the way to yeah. Asia. Um, but like, I'll go to Silicon Valley. I'll, you know, I can do the Palo Alto thing. Like, that's cool. Um, so I started to look at companies whose products that I used and that I was obsessed with. And um, Mint.com was one of them. And I was like, who owns Mint? Well, TurboTax, not TurboTax, Intuit owns Mint. Um, Intuit also owns TurboTax. TurboTax was another product that I had used for the first time to file my taxes. And I was like, what is this Intuit situation? I applied um, to work there as a part of one of their leadership development programs. Got flown out to, you know, Mountain View and was like, oh, this is great. We've got palm trees. We've got snacks. We've got all these colors. Like, I'm sold. And, you know, ultimately got the offer um, and moved out to Mountain View right after graduation to be a product manager for a mobile app. So you ended up working on several teams on a variety of different projects. Can you tell us a bit more about the projects you had the chance to work on? Yeah, you know, I had the best time at Intuit. Intuit's awesome because they're super um, like innovative and new, even though they're so old. They're like, you know, in terms of technology world, right? They're like 40 years old. And they, they have a bunch of different products that they've either acquired or are made internally. So they've got QuickBooks, uh, TurboTax, you know, Mint.com, which is an acquisition. Um, they've got an entire payroll payment system. And so what's beautiful about working at a company like that is that they gave us the freedom as a part of this program to go and try out all those different products and try out different functions within those different 
like many companies, right? So I started off in the payroll division working as a product manager for a mobile app that was focused on um, really early stage small businesses who didn't necessarily need a full payroll system. Maybe they only had one or two employees, some 1099 contractors. And so I learned a lot about like user development, launching a product um, and and ultimately figuring out how to grow even in a regulated industry, right? When you're doing the state and federal calculations for payroll. So one of the things that I learned from that experience was really about like the product management process. From there, I actually went rogue and I moved to D.C. to work in their D.C. office, which focuses on policy and relationships with um, policymakers and lobbying. And it was so interesting, right? You know, because of TurboTax, there are so many things that Intuit has to learn and do and, and the relationships that they have to manage. And so I actually there worked with their team to educate them on the business side of things because most of them were, you know, D.C. through and through lawyers. And so I was teaching them about um, what it was like to be on the other side and, and like how we could work together and kind of bridge the gap there. So that was great. I then moved back to California, moved to San Francisco and worked at a startup that Intuit had acquired called Demand Force. And so this was like a whole new world, right? So no longer working at a 40 year old company with tons of process and bureaucracy and like all these things. It was like, you know, we are in downtown San Francisco, Market Street and Fourth, and, you know, we have dogs on the floor. It's a sales organization. So there's just calls everywhere and all day, every day. Um, and I was on the business development team there. And so I learned so much about sales, right? Listening to a thousand calls a day, you learn so much about just how to like navigate objections, sales strategies, like everything. Um, and then being on the business development side, I was able to learn a lot about partnership structures. And really, like when I think about Blavity today, it's definitely a hybrid of, of a lot of what I've learned and being able to see those different parts of the business. So transitioning from a larger team to a startup, what were some of the biggest lessons that you learned? Um, I think it would be to know your customer and to design an experience that is unique for that specific customer and to be really, really specific about who that customer is, right? So be specific about the customer and design something that solves specific pain points for that person. That's some great advice. So today you're the founder of Blavity. Can you tell us a bit more about Blavity and what really motivated you to start it? So Blavity is a media company and platform for black millennials. So we have, you know, for the most part right now, we're in the number one website for black millennials in the United States uh, in terms of traffic and reach. We've been around for two and a half years. We started July 2014 is when we launched the first version of the site. And we do things like we make great content, you know, video articles. We have an awesome editorial and news team. We also have an open submissions platform similar to Medium. So anyone in our community can submit essays, videos, you know, listicle type content, and then our editors will curate it. And then we have events. We have an events business. So we have two conferences, Afrotech, which is a tech conference, and then Empower Her, which is our women's conference. So, you know, it's it's a it's your typical kind of media business, but powered by a lot of fun things on the back end to make it really efficient and to enable user generated content. In terms of why I started it, I mean, that's a it's a it's an interesting story. So if you rewind, you know, in our in our world in, in America, specifically to two and a half years ago, um, particularly in August of 2014, what was happening was Mike Brown had just happened. And then being a St. Louis native, 
I was, you know, totally knew everything that was happening. and was super plugged in, but was kind of stuck in San Francisco. So I was at Demand Force at the time at the startup and in my cubicle, you know, looking outside at Market Street and then at the same time, always on Facebook, on Twitter, on Periscope, on all these different places, trying to figure out what was going on. Where are people? Is people in jail? Like all of these different things. This was before, you know, you have all these really great Black Lives Matter organizers and leaders. This was before they had risen in terms of visibility. They were just getting more visible when Mike Brown happened. And so there was no place, there was no definitive place to look. Now, Blavity had already launched by then, but that was when I think I started to take it incredibly seriously. And my co-founders who I went to college with, Jonathan, Jeff, and Aaron, also started to say, okay, there's really a need here for a new generation of like young people of color and black people specifically to come together and to have a place where we can be a clearinghouse for information and we can enable some of the people who are on the ground in these cities to use our scale to get the word out about what's happening and, and help them organize. So what is, what's it like going all in on Blavity and, and what has been some of the challenges you've had to overcome by building this uh, platform? Oh man, it's really scary. Like I think it's scary for everybody, <laughs> including my parents, for me to to really say like this is it. Like this is where this is what I'm I'm putting my flag in the sand and saying that this is what I'm gonna do. Um, at least for the next, you know, like seven to fifteen years of my life, hopefully. One of the biggest challenges I think was, you know, you get a lot of people who say like this doesn't make any sense. Um, and the market's too small or um, I don't like how you're going about this. I think you should go a different route or solve the problem a different way. And particularly in the early stages, it can be really easy, especially for me. There were times when I was like, am I going about this the right way? Should I think about it differently? Does it even make sense? You know, and what was hard for me was communicating the vision that I have in my head to people before there was really anything tangible in the world that they could really look at and grasp. Now everybody sees it and they're like, I get it. It's great. We love Blavity. I'm like, yeah, but like two years ago, you guys were like, what is this? What is this thing? Um, so I think there was a lot of self-management that I had to do um, in the early stages to continue uh, and be like really diligent and disciplined about building the business. Yeah, absolutely. And so how has the, the vision for the site, I mean, was it always the same or has it kind of grown? I mean, you, you spoke about that moment, you know, over that summer and, and kind of seeing the need, you know, and, and I guess how has it, it expanded to taking on the, uh, the challenge of showcasing and supporting multicultural creators? You know, the vision has like the, the big vision, which we haven't realized yet, is to be uh, to, to one to touch every like person of the diaspora in the world at least once a day, um, whether that's through our content, whether that's through someone else's content or story that has where Blavity is the platform and the vessel in which they're consuming it, whether that's through an event, whether that's through a daily newsletter, whether that's through a video on Netflix, you know, that's that's the grand vision. And then in terms of our mission, right, it's to empower people, it's to educate and inform and entertain. You know, I'm, our mission and our vision have, have stayed the same. I think Definitely how we get there and the order in which we will get there has changed like dramatically depending on the, on the market um, and depending on, and in a lot of ways, honestly, like fundraising, because there's certain things right now that people are willing to fund and there's certain things that we need to prove out before we can start to realize that part of the vision. So in the beginning, growing a media company is pretty cheap to start off 
really early on in a media company, right? Like you can write, writing is free, anybody can do it. Now it needs to be good in order to get traction, but you can usually, if, if you have a good idea and it's a good market, you can usually get enough traction. And so that's why, without spending a lot of money, so that's why we started with media. You know, video is something that costs a little bit more money. You need a little bit more lead time, right? So now we're just now investing in video now that we have a little bit more wiggle room as a company and including the technology, right? We started on WordPress. Well, actually, we started on MailChimp as a newsletter, right? Like many companies do these days. Then we moved to WordPress. You know, WordPress is great, but you can't build a platform on WordPress, right? And so we then were able, after our last round of funding to bring on some engineers and build out our own CMS, which now we're using. So it's it's definitely evolved. That's really cool. And so, you know, speaking of that evolution and, and the transition from, you know, different content types or, or sort of attaining the next level of content, you know, Blavity has grown to over 20 million readers since you guys first launched in, in 2014. So can you talk to us a little bit about what, what it was like kind of building that community and, and, you know, the ways that you guys went about getting your content out there and reaching everybody and, and you know, to see that growth? You know, I think, one, the process was really interesting because the the Blavity community made Blavity its own. Like we can post stuff and if it is off brand, they will tell us. And the black community specifically is incredibly vocal on Twitter and Facebook. And um, so our comment section on Blavity and on our social networks are always really, really high. Lots of engagement, lots of arguing back and forth, some very thoughtful responses. So I think like seeding that that type of a brand where people feel so emotionally connected that they feel like they can say, no, I do not accept this piece of content that you just put out. Like this is not something that I'm going to engage with you. If you do this, I'm not going to engage with you anymore. Um, like that's really cool. Right. And the way that we did that, I think um, back to my earlier about what I learned at Intuit it was we built for a very specific type of user and we seeded our community with people who are very passionate, right? These were like artists, poets, like creators, people who had a point of view and were unapologetic about their point of view. And in fact, their point of view was oftentimes about a subculture or a counterculture of black mainstream. So we didn't launch with hip hop. We don't even have a music vertical, right? We didn't talk about beauty. We didn't talk about hair, right? Those are the stereotypical um, like content things that happen in the black community. We talked about Afrofuturist. We talked about the black nerd community, the blurred community. We talked about black Twitter. And so those communities were very loyal and engaged early on, which helped us kind of like build that foundation um, when we first started. So as you mentioned, Blavity just raised, you know, uh, over a million dollars in funding last September from a variety of investors. So what was this process like for you and why did you end up choosing to raise money? Yeah. So um, if you had asked me two years ago if I was going to raise, I'd be like, no way. Like we can build this business. It's going to be fine. Like we'll be able to scale it. Brands want content. We can have ads. It'll be fine. Yeah. No, that's not how it works. Right. Like once you reach a certain scale, your operating expenses wind up skyrocketing right and um even with clients and great brands that we've partnered with like hbo or cadillac you know not their accounts payable don't necessarily line up with my accounts receivables right so you need to have some level of capital so you can invest in things that will become realized in the future and that's something that i i had to learn as a leader of the company that if i really want to accomplish the mission and our team really wants to have the fuel to get there we need venture funding now, we don't need necessarily like 
$50 million valuation and tons of money, right, in year three or four. But we do need to find some strategic partners who can help us uh, get to the next level. And so that's really what we looked for when we looked for our first round of funding. Um, well, actually, I'll take that back. The first time I raised money, I failed, right? So I started, I tried to raise and all the investors I talked to like, mm, you're not there yet. You need to have more traction. So I, we, we all were head, heads down for another few months. And then I went back out and started to raise um, with actually the same amount of traction, but just with a different way of saying it, and, which wound up working. So, I mean, I think that's one thing for any people who are listening and founders who are listening and thinking about raising. Sometimes it's about the story that you're telling. It's not actually your numbers. It's how you're talking about your numbers in a way that people can hear you. So that's something I had to learn. But, you know, going back to like fast forwarding it a, a bit, you know, our investors now, which include Macro Ventures, which is based out of Los Angeles, the Knight Foundation, the Knight Fund, um, New Media Ventures, and a variety of angels who have a lot of expertise, like Michael Rothman of Fatherly. You know, these are all very strategic partners for us. And so we can have, they understand the business, but they, and they also understand the mission. And so that's been, um, I think, really encouraging for me as a founder, and especially as like a first-time founder, to have people like that on our board of advisors and um, advising me personally. So when you say that you you changed the way that you were talking about the traction that you got that, that you had you know up until that point, can can you tell us a little bit more you know if you don't mind me asking like what you what you mean by that or how you changed it or yeah. guess, that process? So when I first raised, I went after people at, and I think a lot of people do this. So I don't know this might be not super PC. So bear with me, guys. So. When I first raised, I went after all the black investors because I was like, well, they're going to get it. Duh. Like they're black. I'm black. Like, you know, we're power to the people and they're going to invest in Blavity because it's a great idea. Right. And we had traction. We had like, I don't know, like 700,000 monthly visitors, no funding, no ad spend, like just pure organic, just everything. Right. So I went and talked to a bunch of them and they were so nice, super helpful, friends with a lot of them now, but they did not, um, they did not write a check. They were willing to have, you know, biweekly phone calls. They were willing to introduce me to somebody else. They were willing to give me all the advice in the world, which I didn't need. What I needed was check, right? And that was what was going to get me to the next level. So I was discouraged and I didn't, I didn't realize in the, in the moment, looking back, I now know what it was, but in the moment, I didn't realize that it wasn't actually my numbers. It was the type of investor I was going after, regardless of skin color, they were the wrong types of investors. Cause just cause you understand the pain point doesn't mean that my business lines up with, with what they need to accomplish as an investor, right. Depending on their, their fund. So the next time I, I raised, which was like three months later, again, same numbers, right? Our traction was still great. We still made no money. Um, I still like, we had lots of issues, right? But but we had a great story, had a great community. The next thing that we that we did was go after strategic people who understood that Blavity was a good fit for their portfolio, right? And that our like thesis of the world matched up with their thesis of the world. And that's where the Knight Foundation came in. That's where New Media Ventures came in. That's where um, people like Macro Ventures came in. Most of our investors, actually, from our first round, wound up investing in our second round. Actually, almost all of them. So we have a, a lot of people who are really deep in the business now. That's awesome. I'm really excited that that you know came together for you guys. I'm sure it was a, a stressful time, but it's you know awesome to see how far you guys have come. Yeah, I mean it's not easy for anybody. You know, I think that's one thing people forget. It's like it's it's supposed to be hard. Like you're asking people to give you hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
So you've also launched a pair of awesome conferences, as you mentioned, Empower Her and Afrotech. So what really was the motivation behind, you know, gathering the community and, and launching this type of event? And can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what the approach was towards putting this type of thing together? Yeah, so Empower Her was our first conference. And really, it was a test. We were trying to figure out how to monetize all of this awesome engagement that we had. And we needed an easy way for brands to trust us because they're like, mm, digital, mm, social, not really sure we want to do that. Like you guys don't really have the scale of a BuzzFeed or a Refinery29. So the, you know, the ROI doesn't necessarily make sense for us on the digital end, right? But we knew that we had something special. We knew we had something that would translate into dollars if they could figure out we could figure out how to how to communicate it. And so an event sponsorship is actually one of those, you know, really old school things that brands still hang on to and are willing to pay, even if the scale of the event doesn't actually match up. Right. So I can say, give me ten thousand dollars and I'm going to reach it's a 500 person event. And, you know, they have social reaches. They'll tweet about it. They'll, you know, Instagram about it. And the brand's like, oh, OK. If I was like, give me $10,000 so that we could do a video and it's going to go out on Facebook and it's going to get 3 million views, they're like, mm, I don't know what's really a view. I'm not really sure. I'm like, okay, great. Let's do an event, right? So that was the test, right? And it turned out to be true. And now what, what's awesome is that a lot of those relationships that we started off in, as conference sponsors have then translated into digital buys because they get it and they trust us. And, and so it's, it's been a good kind of like lead gen for our business. In terms of the consumer side, what's really exciting about in-person events, particularly for millennials, is that there's a lot of people that we all follow online on Instagram and Twitter, particularly in the black community that you never meet in real life, like ever. Right. And so we wanted to bring some of our own personal faves, people that we feature all the time on Blavity or have co-created content with together so that they can meet each other and, and that so we could meet them. And so that was the first test with Empower Her was we brought some amazing speakers together like Elaine, the editor in chief of Teen Vogue, um, Netta from Black Lives Matter. There's so many different um, amazing kind of influencers and power move, movers in, in the, this space together into one room. And it was a phenomenal like moment, I think, of community for us. Um, and then similarly in Afrotech, you know, the tech industry, a lot of people talk about how there's not a lot of diversity in tech and there's not a lot of black founders and you know VCs can't find us, we can't find them, right? And it, it's interesting um, being one of the black founders and being one of the few black female founders, like, yeah, there aren't a lot of us, but we do exist, right? Like there's still thousands of us. There's just not tens of thousands of us necessarily. There might be, right? And so Afrotech was a, a test, an experiment to try to figure out how we can bring those people together who may be outliers or who may be sitting at a Google or a Facebook and not necessarily walk by somebody who looks like them every day. That's one of the reasons we did Afrotech and it wound up being super successful. You know, both of them are, are sold out events and things that we'll be doing on an annual basis. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really cool to to hear about again, like the the shift in perspective in terms of advertising dollars and just getting people to, you know, rally around what you guys are doing and the message that you're trying to to share and get out there. So I mean, it, it's awesome to see, and uh, we'll definitely link to both sites so that people can check out, you know, the videos from Afrotech and everything that that I always see up and on Twitter. And it's awesome to see you guys doing that. Yeah, it, I mean, I was super inspired. I was in tears by the end because some of these people, I'm like, yo, you are killing it. And like, I just have never heard of the story. I've never heard their stories, right? And that's really what Blavity is about at the end of the day. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for uh, for Blavity as a community, uh, you know, in this upcoming year? So one of the things that we invested in in 2016 that I think is finally like more public and less buggy is our new platform. So anyone can sign up for an account and submit their story and submit their idea to the website. Um, and it has to go through an editorial process, but it, it now is enabling more diverse stories to be told because it's not just things that go through like our internal editorial team. So I'm really excited about making that process easier for people and working with creators to figure out how we can help them like leverage the Blavity scale to get the word out about whatever they're working on in their ideas. The second thing that I'm super excited about is video. You know, it's, it's one of those things that we wanted to do two years ago, but couldn't afford. Um, and now, you know, lucky us, there's now more distributors than ever in terms of video, right? Facebook's getting into TV shows. You've got Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, you've got Snapchat, everybody is investing in original video content or licensing video content. And so I think it gives us a lot more wiggle room to be creative and to be extreme in terms of the kind of content that we're creating. Um, and so I'm looking forward to some of the things that we've been doing behind the scenes to finally be released into the world of some of our partners. So those are, those are probably the biggest two, like our user-generated content and telling more stories via video. That's amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, Blavity rolls out in 2017. Yeah, thank you. So if you could share some advice about building a career or life with the younger version of yourself, what would you say? I would say uh, to the younger version of myself that don't be afraid of being your true authentic self and the things that you think in your head are totally valid um, and that the place that I'm in, like as I move through my life, is exactly where I'm supposed to be. That um, I think when I was younger, I was always looking to the next step, always looking to, okay, this is what we're going to do in five years. Like this is the, this is the full blown out vision and like that's where we need to go. And now being in this process and like really being in it and being a couple years out of it, for me, it's really about like enjoying the moments now and enjoying each stage. Like we're in a very special stage. I'm in a personal, a very special stage in my life where, you know, I've got an amazing team. We're a small team of, you know, 17. Once we get to 50 or 60 or 100, like that's just a whole different world, right? And so trying to enjoy every single moment and embrace it and embrace the challenges as a part of the process. That's definitely some advice that I give to my younger self. You know, living in the moment is like some some awesome advice, and I try to stick to that as well. So, what are some most recent apps that you've downloaded or used lately? Okay, well, I'm using. I've been obsessed with Mario Run, so that's kind of lame. On the more techie side, I just got a Ringly, which is this beautiful pedometer. Um, so I've been really into. I was a, I was an avid Fitbit user, and then I kind of fell off. Um, but I just got this Ringly as a gift, and so I've been obsessed with tracking my steps. Um, and kind of getting fit for the year. I just, this is also kind of random, but we as a company have started to use Trello a lot more. And I really actually love Trello's mobile app more than their desktop app. So those are the three things I've been using a lot on a daily basis. Nice. I, I haven't tried uh, the Trello mobile app for a while, but when, uh, definitely when I used it in the past, uh, I, I remember it being great. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty good. I mean, I'm sure it's old, but <laughs> new for me. So do you have any recommendations of just some great content that you come across lately, like either a book, blog post, or any, any videos? 
you know, what I've been reading a lot lately actually has been these like news curated newsletters. I mean, I feel like everybody's so into them right now, but I've been reading DigiDay's newsletter every day for the last few months. And they're just killing it in terms of kind of like synthesizing what's happening in the media content tech world, right? Everything from like what Snapchat's doing to, you know, different acquisitions like uh, Pure Wow just got acquired, right? And so let's see, what else? Let me pull up my podcast. I like a lot of podcasts. I've been reading, listening to a lot of Gimlet, Gimlet's podcasts. They're amazing. Yeah, I was listening to their startup podcast, which I think a lot of people listen to now, but I definitely recommend it because you get to hear kind of the inside stories of a lot of the different startups um, that you've probably heard about already. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some pretty cool resources. Uh, We'll definitely make sure we link to them so other folks can check it out if they haven't yet. So I guess on that, do you have any last thoughts or or personal models that you live by and you think other people should know about? It's definitely to, to just start and to do something. I think oftentimes I can find myself in, in my head and um, like going through different scenarios and modeling out different things, if this, then that type of situation. But really, when I think about my career and I think about the best parts of my life and the things that I'm most proud of, it's it's really because I, I took a leap of faith and I just started. So I try to remind myself that, you know, again, doing something is just part of the process uh, and there is no right or wrong answer. So. Awesome. I couldn't think of a better way to end the episode. Morgan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was amazing to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do the show without your awesome support. So if you enjoy the show, feel free to share it with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show.